14. Here we go. Romans 14. I will read the Romans 15, chapter 7. Let me give you a little background before we read. As over the last month, just about, we've been speaking about Christians standing before the judgment seat of Christ and what it's going to be like, what it entails, uh, the sort of apprehension we might have if we stand before the judgment. If we, if we were to stand before Christ's seat, it might not sound so bad, but something about judgment really grasps us. And I want you to know there's no fear involved. If you're a Christian, there's no fear involved. Uh, Jesus is much more merciful than man is. Always, always remember that. He's much more merciful to us than we are to ourselves. So let's not forget that. But we do want to find out what it is. And what's going on in this chapter are two groups of people. The, The weak and the strong, Paul defines them as. The weak... Are those who are sensitive in conscience. They're, used, they're most likely come out of a Jewish background. They're Jewish Christians. They love Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But they got a lot of rules and regulations they're still holding on to. So they're sensitive. They, they have a hard time just giving up the old time religion just for all this freedom in Christ. They're called the weak. The strong are most likely Christians that come out of a pagan society. And they just embrace Christ. Their eyes were just open. They embrace Jesus. There are no rules, there are no regulations no more. It's about loving God and living a life of gratitude unto Him. And when we do that, the law of Christ is fulfilled, which is the law of love, and so on and so forth. And uh, But there's a tension between these two groups. There's a tension. Those who are free in Christ, the strong, are condemning and looking down their noses at those who are weak. And those who are weak are judging those who are strong as though they're living a licentious lifestyle. They're they're living a cavalier attitude towards the law of God. They're showing no respect for the law of Moses. And so we got this tension going on. And uh, throughout this chapter and seven verses, you're going to see Paul intermittently in between. You're going to see him try to bring them down to earth with some real spiritual reasoning. Okay? And I want you to pick up, because that's what today's going to be about, the spiritual reasoning uh, of, of, of why to live for the Lord. But anyway, let's go through this and let's see if you can pick it up. Excuse me. <coughs> Chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while a weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems a day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord, and gives thanks to God also. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. 
For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may be with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ died for us for the glory of God. Let us welcome one another, Lord God. Let us welcome each other into our hearts as Christ has welcomed us into his heart, Father. Let us open up our hearts to one another the way your Son opened up his heart to us. Yes, to the whole world, Father God. For you love the whole world, Father God, that you gave your only begotten Son, that whomsoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Father God, we're people called by your name. We're people that possess eternal life. And we possess it not because of our own goodness, our own merit, or we deserve it, Father God. On the inside, we're rotten. But you have accepted us. You have welcomed us. And you transformed us, Father God. You don't call us sinner. You don't call us slaves. You call us friends now, Father. You have opened up yourself. God, teach us, encourage us to get behind the spirit of what Paul is saying and how he is saying it, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. As we've been speaking on believers standing before the judgment seat, we saw that within this text, we'll be accountable to Christ. Within this chapter, hopefully you followed, we'll be accountable before Christ for our attitudes, our motives, our agendas 
towards other believers. Towards other believers. That's what it means for the Christian. The other two times Paul talks about a Christian standing before the judgment seat of Christ, and I spoke about this already, He's in one context it's about teachers within the church and how they're teaching, their motives and their doctrine. Another time it's about the false apostle and the real apostle. Whether it's good, that's a good apostle, or whether it's evil, that's the false apostle. And then the third time Paul talks about it, it's this context, we spoke about it last week, it's about believers, not about teachers, not about false apostles. It's about ordinary, everyday Christians like you and me. And it's in that context, how we get along, I'll speak about it in historical context and how it applies to us today. But this is what it is, God is truly concerned about genuine love for one another, about genuine concern. And it should be a little unnerving to say, oh my goodness. It should give me a check in my heart. How am I with the brethren? What would people speak about me? It is important to have this sort of uh, concern, a healthy spiritual concern. It's there to grip our imagination and, and not to, how can I say, get us to be better. I can tell you now, if I sat here every Sunday for 25 more years and preached to you in every imaginable way about standing before Christ's judgment seat, you will not change one iota. But if I sat here and I preached every Sunday for 25 years on the cross of Christ, if it doesn't change, nothing will. Nothing will. It's the cross that changes. Not the judgment seat. So, as an, and I've been closing with this statement, I'll start it here, that if there's something going on in my life, and I'm struggling in this area, and I'm weak in this area, then it's not the judgment seat, it's the cross I have to evaluate. What does the cross mean to me? What happened at the cross? What happened in my salvation? Does it really mean something to me? Has it impacted my life? We'll speak about this as we go along. But it is about attitudes towards one another. <clears throat> In the context we're speaking about, it's the weak, either by way of judging others' hearts, as having a cavalier attitude towards God and His law, like, well, you know, they're not holy enough. Or by looking with contempt on those with sensitive conscience uh, toward ma- certain matters of, uh, of Old Testament regulations, as they, you know, something get with it. That's antiquated. Uh, uh, come on, you know, get, get with it. Jesus died for all that. Get, get away from the festivals and the Sabbath and circumcision. Get away from all that. What Paul was teaching is that both, this is important, that both can hold to deep convictions without condemning the others. And they're both missing that. It's okay to have deep convictions. Just don't condemn someone else with your convictions. And that's what Paul is saying. A matter of fact, if these convictions, remember what he said, that strange thing, if it's not of faith, it's what? It's a sin. Does that throw you off a little bit? If it's not of faith, it's sin. It should be, because it makes no sense unless you know the context. It makes no sense. And this is what it means. As a matter of fact, if these convictions that I can eat or I can't eat, if it's not rooted in faith and expressed in love towards God, they're sinful and self-condemning. 
They're sinful and they're self-condemned. If I'm doing something for God, then I should be doing it just for Him. Not so I can sit at you and say, you're not doing what I think you should be doing. If it's of God, I should be happy doing it. Period. And if I'm not happy doing it, and I'm condemning someone else for it, then it's not of faith, it's not expressed in love, and it's sinful and self-condemned. Tonight, because of these great truths that the text teach us, and that we're going to have to give an account, I thought it would be best to see what we can learn to be better prepared for the day. Because, please, who was here last week? Who was preaching last week? You see people thinking, what am I going to say? I'll get myself in trouble. It was me. It was me. As sure as you saw me last week and you saw me today, you will stand before Christ. You will stand there. You you might not be able to envision that. Maybe you can envision seeing me again next week. But envision that just as much as you see me now, you and I will stand before Christ. There will be a real day we stand before Christ. And because of that, I want to be prepared. I want to be prepared. Paul holds out certain criteria that I believe will be used on that day. Jesus will sit there and... and well, what, what we got here, Paul holds out certain criteria that will be used. This chapter is an open book test. How many people like open book tests? I always liked an open book. I even failed those. That's how bad of a student I was. I, I was really bad. So let's see how we're doing, all right? Are you ready? You want to take this test today? Are you sure? Are we going to hear some amens and hallelujahs? Or am I going to see the tissues coming out? We're going to do the open book test. But there's some things I got to do. Before we move on, we need to know something. We need to know... What this is and what it's not. Paul is talking about a tolerance, but what this tolerance is, is and what it's not is very important. What it is is this. These are ways of honoring God, either in the freedom of Christ, that's the strong, so that all religious regulations from the Old Testament are over, and my faith now affirms Christ's all-sufficient grace to save I live in total freedom. You don't have to give me a law because my life flourishes in the law of love for God and my neighbor. As Paul says in Galatians, against this, there is no law. When you're filled with the fruit of the Spirit, there is no law. What, are you gonna, what kind of charge are you going to bring? What, what are you going to bring against someone who walks in self-control and gentleness and kindness and humility and compassion and joy and peace and love? That person's not stealing. They're not living in hate. They're not living in prejudice. They're not living in immorality. They're not living in drunkenness. What are you going to tell them? You can't. Because the law is the the love is the fulfillment of the law. But the weak is a continual personal. Those who still want to eat just vegetables because Daniel did it in the Old Testament. And it has a way of pleasing God. To them, it's a personal conviction. It's a personal observation. And they do it for the sake of loving God. Is there a law against that? If someone says, I won't eat pork. 
do we jump down their throat and say the pork, you can eat all the pork you want, or I don't need it on Friday. Are you doing it for the Lord? Absolutely. Praise God. Enjoy yourself. I'm going to get in the way of someone doing something for God? Are we that foolish to jump down someone's throat and say, are you crazy? When they're doing it for the Lord, I leave it alone. It's meaningless. It's a non-essential. Absolutely meaningless. This is not tolerance of sexual immorality. It is not tolerance of heretical teaching for the sake of some kind of false unity. This is not tolerating sin at all. This is about non-essentials that make no difference in God's economy anymore. Even though we're not familiar with these food laws and these sacred days and this meat and wine that's sacrificed to idols, that's what Paul was talking about here. We're not familiar with that. Listen to this. There is a tension in this chapter that still lives on in the church today. It's here. You'll watch by the time the end of the sermon, you'll be like, Amen. That's me. That's him. That's her. That's my uncle. That's my father. That's my brother. That's my wife. That's my husband. Never was. But there's this tension that still goes on today. And I'll be working through an illustration of concentric circles. You know what that is? It's, It's a little circle. And guess what's outside that? Another circle. Guess what's outside that? You guys, this is great. Geometry at its best. Okay. The inner circle, that first circle, is the historical situation as we basically already explained. It's the weak and the strong. It's the Jew and the Gentile. They're not getting along with each other. Some people are living in freedom. Some people are living under regulations. Instead of tolerating one another and not condemning each other and not judging one another, they should be concerned for one another, caring for one another, loving one another, embracing one another, accepting one another, welcoming one another, because both groups are doing it onto the Lord to love Him. So let's get together. Eat all the vegetables you want. Broccoli raw. So when it comes to the first circle, we, we understand it, we can see it, it's clear, but most of us aren't living under that. We're not coming out of Jewish backgrounds, and it just really doesn't, it's hard for us to grasp that. But the second circle, remember the concentric circles, okay. we're on the second one now. This is more up to our speed, and that's more we would see over denominational differences today. We'll see things like uh, uh, Pentecostals and conservatives uh, debating over tongues or prophecy or the healings and miracles and uh, that kind of stuff. That's more familiar. Now you're hitting home. That's something I can identify with. If you're a thinker, if you're familiar with Christian doctrine, if you're familiar with interdenominational debates, and that one you'd be like, oh, I understand. I, I know that one. Then there's the Calvinism, Arminian, uh, once saved, always saved, free will, the sovereignty of God, and so on and so forth. And there's tensions between the Baptists and the Presbyterians about infant uh, baptism. Uh, there's uh, the, the King James only people, they're roaming around out there. If you're not reading that, you're going to hell. And, you know, there's all these kind of interdenominational tensions. And there are a lot of more, they're there. Uh, has anybody ever come across anything I just said? Okay, it's there. But a lot of that stuff is non-essential. Listen to what Paul says in in this chapter. We just read it. I'll read it again. For if because of food, or we could say, if it's because of tongues, if it's because of 
healings, if it's because of miracles, if it's because of the King James Version, your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking in love. Now, now it's coming to us, right? You know, walking with... Do not destroy with your food or opinions or your petty doctrines him for whom Christ died. Don't do it, Paul said. So when it comes to certain personal convictions over Christian teaching, and that's everything I just said, in this concentric circle, that does not qualify as essentials to salvation, but are more of non-essentials, let each person be fully persuaded in their own conscience as they honor God, not to pass judgment on everybody. I'll give you one example in that. That's what I have here. Someone stole it. The cloud stole it. Not this. Must be not there for a reason. The cloud stole it for a reason. Providence. Okay, third circle. This is really going to hurt. Are you ready? Remember the three circles? Into the third circle now? This is more about personal dispositions and idiosyncrasies. This is more about, uh, it could be certain socioeconomic tensions, but really these are personal dispositions, the tension that comes from personal dispositions, personal idiosyncrasies. Uh, this is where we find most of the tension that will be represented in this chapter in the local church today. I'm not worried about who, as a pastor, has been eating meat on Friday. I'm not concerned of finding out who's eating only vegetables or, or who's drinking wine sacrificed to idols. I mean, that doesn't apply to us today. But there's still tension. And the principles found in the chapter apply to these ongoing tensions of personalities and idiosyncrasies. Uh, the church is it's a test tube of personalities that are clashing and banging together. It's a petri dish of inner turmoils and personal opinions that somehow, some way, form a new man, a new woman in God called a new creation, the church. Somehow God takes this petri dish of different socio-economic personalities, idiosyncrasies, we throw them together, he steps back and he says to the world, look what my grace can do. That's the church. And when people jump out of the church because of personal disagreements, after a while, I say, you know something, I've heard so many stories on that, it's not because of the church, it's because of the individual. When people, well, I don't go to church no more because I used to listen, and it was like wasting my time. It's the same story from different people all the time. Same story. What they're saying is that you're antisocial, and you can't get your act together. That's the problem. There's nothing to do with the people. Because there are no perfect churches. If you say I'm going to another church, that's another story. But if you tell me I don't go to church no more, you are on rocky ground. Period. God loves our different personalities. God loves the idiosyncrasies. He loves the unique things that irritate us. You know how it is. 
I mean, put two people together who love one another. Wife, raise your hand. That's my wife. I'm the husband. We love one another. But no one can irritate each other like we can. We're our own little Petri dish. When we said, I do, and the two shall become one. Little did we know what God was doing. Little do we still know what God is doing. But praise God, he is doing it. He's doing it. The church is beautiful. Paul describes what I just said here as that which God is building. What do you think God's building? A cathedral? To care less. He lived in the desert in a tabernacle. The whole Old Testament. You think he cares about the building we get in? Or the attitudes of the heart that's in the building? We're God's Petri dish. Can you say that? We are God's Petri dish. We're God's test tube. And God is testing the power of the blood of Christ and the gift and grace of the Holy Spirit. He's forming a new community where patience, compassion, humility, Rule the day. Listen to verses 18, 17, 18, and 19. It says this. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. What he's saying is like, listen, don't, don't major in the minors. This is minutiae. It's, it's worth the stuff. But the kingdom of God between Jews and Gentiles of all different personalities and idiosyncrasies, it's about righteousness. It's about right living with each other. And it's about hearts being filled with peace and the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's where our strength comes from. Christ paid for all this. Listen to verse 18. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. That's the new community. But if we don't do that, then envy, jealousy, criticism, malice, and strife come in and tear down what God is building. Listen to verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in your brother's way. Listen to verse 15. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food him who Christ died. Listen to verse 20. Do not tear down the work of God for food. Do not tear down. Many people come to church, and most of us are coming to church for what? Well, most of us don't realize that God is building something. And what happens? We bring our own... How can I say? Selfish desire to get what I can out of church. But that's not what church is. Church is each of us being used by God to build one another up and to care for each other. And what does this building look like? Do you know your text? He's building us up into something. What does Romans 8, verse 29 say? For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. That's what he's building. Do you or I want to get in the way of Christ being formed in another person? Do, you, do we want to tear down this work? 
Paul is using sarcasm and logic to make his point. He's basically saying, you're out of your mind. Don't get in the way of God is doing. God began something. Don't tear it down by your personalities and idiosyncrasies and judging and criticizing one another and condemning one another. Put these lower attitudes out of your heart. And put on the law of love, which is Christ. So what does the text teach us about the positive things to help us in our walk of faith and overcoming these negative attitudes? They're there. So we're part of the building. How many people want to be part of the building project of God? Amen. Look at all those hands. How many people want to be part of the demolition squad from hell? I saw that hand almost go up. You were good, brother. You were good. Paul says, don't tear down the work of God, right? Who wants to tear down the work of God? Satan wants to tear down the work of God. Satan loves tension between believers. Loves it. He sits back and he tells the angel of hell, look, look, I don't have to do anything. They're hating one another. They're biting and devouring one another. I don't have to do a thing. Cruise control. But what does the text teach us? I'm just going to go over some of these verses again. And just pick out a couple of words here and there. And I'm going to show us what Paul has in the back of his mind. First thing I want to do is go to verse 3. Chapter 14, verse 3. Let, us not, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the weeds. What's Paul's reason for all this? Because what? Come on, you say the word. God has... Man, goodness. Man, who is that one person? Who is that one person? Listen, God has already welcomed that person. God has already welcomed those who put their faith in Christ. That's the last and final word that has to be spoken. Nothing else needs to be said after that. God, in my estimation, God has accepted you. That's it. Who am I to stand in the way of what God has accepted? Who am I? Who are we? They belong to God, period. End of story. From that moment, I don't care their personality. I don't care their idiosyncrasies. I don't even care if they don't like me. If someone belongs to God... God has welcomed them. God has accepted them. i got to get on board, humble myself before the Lord, be part of the building project, period. That's it. I can't tell, well, you know, God, they're, they're irritating. They're irritating, God. You know, they're getting under my skin. Oh, if God could show us how irritating we really are. If we really could see how irritating we each are. But we're welcome. God has already welcomed them. Period. That's it. With all our differences, God has accepted us. Listen to verse 4. You, who are you to pass judgment on a servant of another? That means a servant of Jesus. It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. We have to realize that Jesus is in full control of the whole matter. Every Christian that's genuinely born again, that has come to Christ, is accepted already by Christ, is accepted by God the Father, no matter what it looks like, 
God is in full control. Can you say amen? Amen. No matter how out of control someone looks like, if they're Christians, if they tell me, Brian, I'm water baptized, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, I've repented of my sins, I'm a disciple of Christ, there's no salvation outside of Jesus Christ, it is totally by work, through grace and faith, period, then in my estimation, until I see something so contrary to that testimony, you are a believer, and I'm going to treat you like one. So those who God has welcomed, Christ sustains them, amen? Amen. That's all we need to know. Verse 5. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Listen to Paul's reason here. We go. Here's this sort of uh, 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 being sarcastic, but, but reasonable. He says, let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. Each person should be totally certain of their personal position in Christ. All these non-essentials that we spoke about earlier, it makes no difference if someone's holding on to a little different understanding. I'm not talking about heresy, all right? I'm talking about things that really don't matter if someone's going to be saved or not. Somebody's not, we can stretch this, I'm making a point for unity and peace on how to live with people, other Christians that see things a little different. If you're fully convinced in your own mind, and do it to the honor and glory of God. Not to condemn someone else who disagrees with us. Amen? Amen. It's, I, I, listen, I fought the theological debates. I was prepared. I had all my artillery. It's futile. It's futile. From now on, I say, yes, brother, God bless you. I love it. met this woman drinking coffee, and we're talking. I said, well, I know your son. And his son came here on many occasions. Came here on Sunday, came on Mondays. And uh, he's not doing well in his life, so I was talking to the mother, and I said, yeah, you know, I've known him for a while. And she goes, oh, yeah. And she goes, oh, yeah, he told me about you. And uh, you know, she goes, oh, I'm a Christian. And I said, oh, yeah. So he goes, yeah, I know that, because I'm a Catholic. I said, okay. She goes, you're part of the splinter group. Right, so I have to take this. We're Protestants. That means you're part of the solution. So I was like, well, all right. I'm not going to get caught way down in this. I see someone who loves God. She goes, I'm born again. I'm saved. Only Christ. And we had a nice little talk. And I'm not going to see the other stuff. I can take the insult. Because I see someone who Christ died for. Period. That's all. I'm going to see the person in the coffee shop once a week for 10 minutes. I'm not going to turn this into a debate. I'd rather enjoy the things we have in common together. Praise the Lord. That's that's we, we praise God. Tell me the testimony of what God's doing in your heart. And she's got a wonderful, wonderful testimony. Of God holding on to it for twenty five years. Praise God. No, I'm not going to see the other stuff. I, I could care less. I could care less. It's wonderful to be that way because I'm fully convinced in my own mind that there's a pure way to worship God. Pure, I know that. I can fight anybody tooth and nail with the Word of God on. But you know something? In this instance. It'll fall on deaf ears, and it's not worth it. I'd rather enjoy some nice fellowship with someone I believe at this point in my life, Christ died for. It's good enough for me. Amen? Amen. Verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in the honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. 
while the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord, and give thanks to God. When it comes to certain theological convictions that we might have, that's the second concentric circle, remember? Those are more theological, doctrinal things. We should praise God for the truths and enjoy them. Now, I'm not ashamed to say both me and this church and what we believe in is, 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 is reformed in thought. We're, we could be accused of being Calvinist, and I, I don't mind that, because at the end of the day, we are. And we're not ashamed of it. There was a time I thought I had to fight that. Do you want to know something? There's not a night I don't go to bed and say, praise God for the doctrine he has taught me. There's not a time I read the Bible that tears don't flow down my eyes for what the great men of the faith in the Reformation have left as a legacy. That my soul runs into, like the righteous run into a high tower. That's, that's how strong a conviction I have for the Reformed thought. And I honor God through it, I praise God through it, and I thank God through it. I don't have to try to convince anybody else anymore. I went down that road. I'd rather just love God for the truth I so dearly hold on to. And I pray you do the same thing. I'm not going to fight with brothers and sisters over these matters. If we can talk about them, nice. But if it's, if it's coming a last word thing, I said, brother, let's, just, let's love one another. It's much sweeter than fighting each other. Verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Most people are going to miss the significance of this. What Paul is saying is, this is the big picture. It doesn't get bigger than this. What Paul is saying is, Christ has rose from the dead. The kingdom of God has come once and for all. Are we going to splash in the shallows? Are we going to live in the personality and idiosyncrasies? Are we going to live as a new man, as a new woman, as a new community? Are we going to be overwhelmed that the Son of God died and God raised him from the dead? Is that the one thought that's going to consume our life and our mind? It should If you or anybody else can raise up in one sentence something more greater and more grander that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God, the kingdom of God has come, the reign of God has come into the hearts of men. If there is something greater in significance than that, let me know. There is nothing greater than that verse of scripture. It should rule everything in our life. Christ and the kingdom have come. That's what Paul is for. Verse 12. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. For Paul, the reality of appearing before Jesus and verbally, and this is what the word means. Give an account means to give a verbal expression to someone. A verbal given of an account of our motives, our intentions within the body of Christ. Our attitudes, our actions, our words concerning other believers. I'm going to give an account of that. You will give an account. That's to shape us in an awareness of the magnitude of what it means to be Christian. But nothing greater than this, and there's more here, I'm not going to go to this last one. 
There's nothing greater than this is verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, I'm going to paraphrase. If you're grieved by your brother with his personality, if you're grieved by your brother with his idiosyncrasies, and, 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 and you're hurting that person, you're no longer walking in love by what you think of another person. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Just think about that. Christ voluntarily came and died for every believer. When we're struggling with interpersonal relationships, when we're struggling with someone's unique difference in personality, some people are rash, some people are abrupt, some people are lazy, some people just have difficult personalities. It's almost impossible. It's almost impossible. What we see has to be tempted by this one fact. Christ died for that person. Period. God has accepted that person because Christ willingly, lovingly, voluntarily died for that person that's irritating us or we think is irritating us. Don't forget that. Understand this, that if that was the only person that was not saved in the universe, Christ would have came and died for that person. Are you with me? How easily can we have attitudes? How easily can we judge and criticize and condemn with our words and our looks and our mannerisms? We condemn someone who Christ came to save and to rescue. Do you see the folly? Do you see the arrogance? How do we not? What's the first thing you see in a person? You know the old proverb, don't judge a book by its cover. We're so used of going through life in the subjective and that means, uh, you know, analyzing people by what we see. We see something that's different. It could be their color of their skin. It could be their, like I said, social or economic background. It could be someone's personality. It could be rich. It could be abrupt. It could be short. It could be tempered. It could be, you know, just sort of irritating type of personality. Is that the first thing we see? Or do we see someone who Christ died for? I tell you, if you don't see someone who Christ died for, you'll be overwhelmed by all the other stuff. You'll be overwhelmed. It'll own us. Paul is making an objective statement. It's a truth. Meaning everybody can see it. Christ died for someone. So when we're lifting up our great opinions, our great evaluations of the world, ask yourself, is that someone Christ died for? And I'll close with verse 18. Think about everything I just said. Paul says this. Whoever thus serves Christ in this way, the NASB says, 
whoever thus serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and approved by man. Our going out of the way to meet needs of other people, to put down our instant opinions and judgments and criticism of other people is a service to God. Who serves Christ in this way? How quick are we to serve Christ in this way? How many of us have or are still making uh, uh, an occupation of criticizing, of judging, of condemning with our looks, of condemning with our indifference to people, our silent protest by turning our back, not going the extra mile, not turning the cheek. How many of us are trying to serve Christ with that attitude? Church, as a pastor, this chapter has always meant much to me. But this is the chapter that has to live within the nucleus of every church. If this is not up and operating in our church, Sonship Ministries, understand something, we'll never be what God wants us to be. We have to make it our aim and ambition and pursue the things that make for peace. We have to make it our aim to mature and to take hold and take captive of all those negative desires and attitudes and uh, emotions we have towards other people for whatever reasons. Understand something. It's rare that we can ever say they deserve it. As a matter of fact, we can never say that. Ever. For what Christ has done for us. Father, we thank you, Lord. When it comes to serving you in this way, Father, when it comes to a service that's acceptable to God and approved by men. Father God, help us. Help us as we live out this context in our own concentric circle of the third one, Father God, of idiosyncrasies and personalities within the church that could be more destructive than building up, Father God. Forgive us all for falling into it. It's only human, Father God, but yet we don't have to live there, Father God. Let us always be reminded that you've accepted the brother and the sister. That Christ died for that person. Let those be the truths. Let that be the prism that we see every interpersonal relationship in the church, Father God. Father God, I thank you for all the people in this church. I thank you, Father God, for all our different personalities. I thank you for all our idiosyncrasies. I thank you for all the irritation that you allow to sanctify us as iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. I thank you, Father God, for the test tube of the church that you brought us into. Father God, to shake it together and something that should not work, it works by the grace of God. So God, continue to shape and form each of us into the image of Christ and let us be the new community on earth. The church in Jesus' name.